the institutes in Leipzig and Freiburg, we encountered no problems at all. But a few days before an online event hosted by the institutes in Hanover and Duisburg Essen, the managing directors rang us. The head of the Chinese mission in Dusseldorf had intervened personally to prevent the event from taking place. The issue was not the content of our book, we were told. Rather, according to the objections from the Chinese side, you can no longer talk about Xi Jinping the way you talk about any ordinary person. He is meant to be untouchable and non-negotiable from now on. The question is, Stuart, is Xi Jinping really that powerful, that revered, that we can't talk about him anymore? Well, that's what we're going to find out today by uh, interviewing the co-author of the book that that extract came from called Xi Jinping, The Most Powerful Man in the World. Stefan Elst, welcome. Now, Stefan, you're a German journalist and you are the former editor-in-chief of Germany's leading news magazine, Der Spiegel, and the author of numerous best-selling books, so I see on your on your bump, uh, including one about the Baden-Weinhof complex, I believe. Oh, yes. Uh, that was actually the biggest success I ever had, but that's a long, long time ago. Okay, right. Well, I think this is going to be more of a success because we've heard that the feedback for your book for, about Xi Jinping is, is pretty good. I suppose the first thing I want to ask is, were the Confucius Institutes really trying to get in the way of you talking about Xi Jinping uh, as per the extract from your book? I mean, what what, what was happening there? Uh, actually, the interesting thing was um, Adrian and I, we did another book about 10 years ago uh, after I was in Singapore and talked to a German professor of economy, and he told me uh, how the influence of Confucius is growing in the Chinese world. And when I came back, I talked to Adrian, and we were discussing about that, and we decided to write a book coming to world power with Confucius. And that was interesting for us, especially for him, because he had lived, he lived in China for about 10 years. And looking back into the Mao Zedong period, Confucius was a no-go. And right now, it looks like Xi Jinping is putting together Chinese tradition, Chinese history, and Confucianism and the communist ideas. And he is concentrating more on China as a country itself. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he's trying uh, to keep in power uh, as long as he lives. And the interesting thing for us was that because we, we wrote this Confucius book, we were in contact with the Confucius Institutes at that time. They were starting at that time, or at least growing into universities all over the world. And so we worked together with them, even with the new book. And what we did not know was that they put parts of the book that they wanted us to read in this online discussion and sent it to China. And then they got an answer and they said, no, there will be no discussion or whatsoever presentation of the book with the Confucius Institutes. And you can imagine we had invited a lot of people and a lot of people had registered. Actually, it was not so many was the pandemic. And so we made digital, we made it public. And then you can imagine the university in, in Hanover and the university in Duisburg uh, decided now we are going to do it ourselves. And then we had, I think, 450 people in Duisburg. And, and later on, we made a big event at the university in Hanover. And there were 600 people. So you can see that decisions 
of authoritarian or dictator countries are not always very smart. They really help us a lot. Uh, so, so Stefan, that was um, some welcome publicity, perhaps. But let's start with um, Xi Jinping and a bit about his background. And what is there in his background, do you think, that has shaped the person that he is today? Well, his father uh, was among the group of, let's say, less than 10 people who were really important during the revolution and around uh, Mao Zedong. But, well, in, in fact, he was not straight online. He was a little bit more liberal than others. Actually, his, his wife and the mother of Xi Jinping uh, as well. And uh, so he really got into trouble and was imprisoned. And Xi Jinping uh, grew up in a very small village under the earth and not really a, a cavern, but, but it was rather hard life. And then uh, during the Cultural Revolution, he was not online as well. And uh, he was put in prison and was isolated. But nevertheless, I think it was because his family background and the story of his father being so important on the side of Mao Zedong that he didn't try to emigrate or try to go somewhere else. But this made him believe more into the party history and, and the party ideology. And plus that, I think, into the tradition of China. He, he brought, let's put it that way, the Communist Party back into the Chinese tradition. And the combination was Confucius. So, 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 Stefan, I mean, a lot has been sort of said about uh, Xi Jinping thought. And obviously, some of his philosophy has been sort of written into the Constitution almost. But is he a deeply ideological man? What, what does he actually really deeply believe in, other than the fact that he should be in power? Should we think of him as being a purist, a, a sort of a, a communist purist? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think so. But he is more on the communist line than the politicians that have been after Mao's time before. I think the most important thing for the economic rise of China is opening the country, uh, becoming part of the world economy uh, and for a certain time be... Uh, what we always say, the, the workbench of the world. And China has, the strongest part that China has is the amount of people and their intelligence and their willingness to work very hard. So in a certain way, uh, after Nixon went in the 70s and, and talked to Deng Xiaoping and they opened the country, they changed the economy. You know, when I look back, into the German history or the, the history of the Soviet Union, uh, you, you could go to Berlin and look across the wall and on the east side of the wall you could see a country with people that were exactly as intelligent as the people in West Germany, but economy did not work because it was a communist uh, economy. Uh, there was no private enterprise and whatsoever. And this just didn't work. So we were always convinced that communism wouldn't work. But when you look to China, you can see that a communist country is able to be very successful in an economic way if the economy is in general a market economy or if it's a, a capitalist economy. 
and and that that is you know the the two power parts of the China after Mao Zedong. You have a market economy, a capitalist economy with a lot of contacts to other countries. They are part of the world economy. And at the same time, you have a one-party system. And you can imagine that this one-party system always has problems uh, with the private enterprise sector because the power is with the party and the bureaucracy, but the money is with the others. And I think, you know, our ideas that we always had, if you have a market economy that will develop into a democracy, what was seen from our side as, let's say, a hope for Xi Jinping and his party, it's a danger. And this is why he uh, fights corruption since years. But the question, who is corrupt and who is not, this is what he decides. So he is staying in power with all these campaigns against corruption, but which is in fact the way to keep the power in the hand of the Communist Party and in his own hands. So interesting you say that, because one of the things that you explain in your book is, if I just read the quote, under Xi, China is turned inward and Stalinism is back with a vengeance. grievance fueled nationalism. You spoke about the corruption campaign, which has obviously been quite prominent since he started. But what you're saying there is that actually China's changed its ethos, really, way beyond sort of looking at the, at the corruption campaign and any of the operational side of things. Really think that, or what's your evidence for Stalinism being back with a vengeance and, and grievance-fueled nationalism being at the fore? Well, you can, you can see in, in almost everything he does and everything he says that he is coming back uh, to the ideology of before. Deng Xiaoping, more back into the ideology and the ideas that one person has to stay on the top of the power and that the party has to control everything. And you can see now during the uh, corona uh, pandemic that he even uses the idea of his zero COVID politics to keep the control over the people, which in the end is not very successful if you look at the economic development uh, of the country. It's not good for economy. And in the end, I don't believe that it really functions, but the, that's another question. But you can see that the main reason for the success uh, of the Chinese economy was opening the borders and to have contacts to all the other countries in the world, to build for them, to sell computers full of things to Hamburg and to New York and everywhere and at the same time to import things. So that means having an open, at least I wouldn't say, yeah, an open society at the same time, because uh, nobody was like in, in East Germany, if he wanted to leave the country, they, they could leave the country, they didn't build a wall. But you can see that she is concentrating more on the Chinese economy and the Chinese tradition and the Chinese history and, uh, the Chinese borders. He is. It's. It's very hard now to get a visa to China. The good reason is always uh, Corona. But in fact, he is trying to close the country at least a part again. And I'm not quite sure if he will be very successful with that. Because when you can see that uh, business partners they have from Germany or from America or wherever, 
when they have to go into quarantine before uh, they can start working or don't get a visa at all. They, they think maybe we can invest in Vietnam as well and we can invest in Indonesia or in, or in India. So you can see, uh, I had a discussion with the, with the head of the economic chamber, the German one, in Peking just today, and he said that the economic uh, actions of, of German companies go or start to go to other countries except in China because they don't like to be regulated from day to dawn. So, so Stefan, uh, interesting points you make there because one of the observations that uh, have been made in a, a lot of democratic countries looking at China and its economic relationships with the rest of the world has been that German industry has had a very symbiotic or apparently symbiotic relationship with China compared to other countries, that companies like BASF and the big auto companies have dominated European FDI into China, and that actually the trade relationship between Germany and China has been relatively symmetric relative to most other countries which have had very asymmetric relationships with China. And that this has led to a a kind of fairly soft stance from German policymakers towards China. Do you think that Germany's attitude broadly outside of the business community towards China has changed very dramatically in the last few years? And if so, to what would you ascribe that change? Uh, actually, I don't think that uh, that this has been changing during the last years because most of the people don't realize that it's hard to get a visa. The discussions about that became bigger after the Ukraine war and after the the attack uh, of Russia against Ukraine and that obviously China is on Putin's side or Xi Jinping is on Putin's side. And, and we, we made an experience we didn't have before in that, in, in, in that way. We imported almost 50% of our natural gas from Russia. And when the war started, there were discussions here, uh, we cannot take the Russian gas anymore. And then uh, they more or less, yeah, they shut it down. So in fact, we were uh, in an economic way very um, dependent on Russian gas. This is a real problem. I don't think that the dependence on exporting cars or whatsoever to China or importing from China makes us so dependent on China. If we couldn't sell our cars anymore to, to China, Volkswagen and Mercedes would have big problems of the German industry as well. But I don't think that it is so dangerous than being dependent uh, on energy uh, from another country. I can repeat all these, all these uh, numbers that economic expert uh, said in this conference today, but I was quite surprised. We are not so dependent if you compare it to energy. We, we are not investing so much in China. They are more investing here and we are investing, I, I don't know, I think eight times more than in Switzerland than, than in China. And actually, 
I'm not quite sure whether we are more dependent on China than the United States. I mean, imagine who builds all these computers and all these technical things that they sell under American labels. It comes mainly from China. I think it's not bad, if I may add that. I don't think it would be good for us, and I don't think it would be good for the world if we would have a division into two parts again, like during the time of the Cold War, that you have a socialist block on one hand side and, and a capitalist block on the other side, and they don't talk to each other, uh, just, you know, uh, see that their uh, nuclear bombs are strong enough to be able to attack the others. I think the fall of the wall and the opening of the countries was not bad for the world. And if you see that a population of 1.4 billion in China is not that poor anymore, this is quite good. We couldn't send enough uh, humanitarian help to China or to other countries. So I think it's good that these countries develop itself and make business. And I think it's good to make business with them. But they are businessmen. And I think it's important that we will be or stay to be businessmen as well and say them the conditions from one side to the other side have to be the same as the other way around. In Peking, you stand at a, uh, at a street and you see how people cross the street. I mean, they are fighting for their way to cross, cross the street. You probably saw that a couple of times. I was always quite amazed by that. But you can see they look at their own interests. And I think the best way to fight that is to look on your own interests as well and then try to find a solution. Uh, the solution won't be to say that we are educating them and telling them in which way they have to uh, organize their country. They wouldn't do it anyway. So I think it's good to say this is our interest and if you don't agree to these conditions, then we talk to other countries and in other parts of the world. But I think globalization is not bad, and I don't think it will be over. So, Stefan, it might be ironic to some that we're talking about a communist great man, given the left's view of great man history. But to what degree do you think that the China of 2022 and beyond has been shaped by Xi Jinping himself? Or was it always going to look like this anyway? Um, I think the influence of um, single persons uh, can be very strong, but they make only a career when the situation is in a way that they can make a career. Uh, if, if he would have positions that are completely different uh, of the interest of big parts of the population and, and big parts of uh, the political world there, he wouldn't be able to make a career. You can see, I mean, if, if I see uh, at this party event there with 2,200 and something uh, people who act like in, a, like in a big show and obey what, what the head is saying, you know, this is not the world I would like to live in. You know, I'm, I'm a child of, of the Western world and I'm, I'm in favor of democracy and a liberal world and, and traveling everywhere. But And when I see it, this is not the world I would like to live in. But on the other hand, we cannot tell them all how they 
can behave. You know, the German Kaiser had this, I say, wonderful word, am deutschen Wesen soll die Welt genesen, you know, the German ideas should save the world, which is complete nonsense. We have to see that other countries develop in their own way, uh, and we can say what we think about it, but I think it is, nevertheless, it is good to have connections, and if there are conflicts, we, we should try not to to bring them in a situation uh, where they then start a war. So, so Stefan, obviously not everyone in China believes with uh, Xi Jinping's program of national rejuvenation, and, and certainly not everyone within the party approves of his style of leadership or even the content of his leadership. So if we look at the next five years, assuming that the Congress results as, as we expect with you know, his consolidation of power uh, being complete, what does he have to do over the next five years, do you think, in order to ensure that he's still around in five years' time? What, what are the challenges that he must rise to um, in order to ensure his survival? I think what he does is a big mistake. I think one of the most important things in a democratic state, but even in a non-democratic state, is that you have a certain way to change the people and the group who is in power. I think one of the best things in the American Constitution is that after World War II, it was written in the Constitution, which was not in the Constitution before, that the president can only be president for two terms. And I think that is very good. And actually, the, the Russians copied that uh, after the fall of the, the Soviet Union and after Russia became a state itself. There was in the Constitution that a, that a president is only allowed to be in power for two terms. And the first one who changed that was Putin. First, uh, in the way that he made Medvedev the president and he became the prime minister, but then he changed it again. I think the best in a democracy is not to vote, but to be able to vote somebody out of power. And, in, and even if you see in democracies, when people, politicians are too long in power, the rest of the time, they used to stay in power. Because it's not only one person who is on the top, but it's always a group of other people. So I think it was a very good idea when Deng Xiaoping, uh, after Mao, they, they wrote into the, I think, the constitution of the party and, and of the state as well, that somebody has to, is only allowed to stay uh, on top for two periods. And I think that was a very good decision. And because Xi Jinping is changing that, He's trying to, to secure his power, but that in the end is not very good for the country. And I'm not sure whether it is good for him himself at the same time. I think that's a big mistake. Most of the time when, when, when a king or uh, a dictator or even a democrat is too long in power, uh, the rest of the time, after, after eight or ten years, there is nothing else for him to do than to try to stay in power. And sometimes to start a war, to stay in power. So many people are saying that uh, she wants to be the new Mao. Uh, and I know you talk about this in your book. But what do you think is the reality? Do you think that he, he does actually want to be considered on a par with Mao? Or is that just uh, people projecting their thoughts onto him? 
Um, I think that's what people project now because Mao is the big person uh, in the Communist Party and out of the, the, the Communist Revolution. But I think Xi Jinping, if you really read what he, what he says and what he has written, wants more. He wants to be in the tradition of the monarchy. He is not only, a, let's say, a convinced communist, but he thinks in, in bigger perspectives. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. And to our listeners who wish to buy the book, uh, the English translation is um, available. It's come out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Xi Jinping, the most powerful man in the world. Thank you, Stefan. Uh, good luck. Thank you. It was interesting to talk to you. Thank you very much.